0: Hey folks, Tim here and Rachel before we get started with this week's episode we have some big First Reading podcast news to share with you.
1: Yes, we do. Longtime fans of the podcast will know that we are nearing the three-year anniversary of First Reading, which means we have gone through the entire lectionary cycle and we've built up an amazing community of listeners and guest scholars.
0: And as we look together at the future of the podcast, we both felt that it was the right time to grow and to include some new voices. So... Drum roll, please. We are adding a third regular co-host to our team.
1: We are, and I am stoked. We are so proud to add to our lineup our friend and colleague and former guest on the podcast, Rosie Candethil. You will probably remember Rosie from our recent episode on the Book of Esther. She's a doctoral candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University, an adjunct instructor at Emory College of Arts and Sciences, and... Just an amazing person in general.
0: <laughs> and friends, you're in for a treat because Rosie starts with us today. Ta-da! She's co-hosting this week's episode with Rachel for a deep dive into the Book of Ruth. And each week that follows, we'll feature a different tag team of two out of the three of us.
2: Though
1: We'll we'll all three get together every once in a while for a party episode.
0: Party We've been episode. working on this. <laughs> what?
1: A party episode. Just keep you Yeah.
0: That's exactly what it is, right? <laughs> We've been working on this whole thing behind the scenes for a while. So we're both really excited to make this announcement now. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, that means I'm done for today. Hey, enjoy the time off. (laughs) I'll hand it over to Rachel and Rosie for this week's episode. So without further ado, let's get to it. Cue the music.
1: Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast, inspiring confident preaching from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. And I'm Rosie Cannithal,
2: a PhD candidate at Emory University. Yay! Your your first official episode! It's so exciting! (laughs) Yay! I can't wait to have this conversation. The first reading for November 7th, 2021 includes a smattering of texts from the Book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 and chapter 4 verses 13 to 17 to be exact. To help us think through these texts for today, we have a special guest who's thought a lot about the Book of Ruth and about, well, most of the texts that have to do with women in the Bible.
1: That's right. With us today is Ashley Wilcox, a Quaker minister and the author of The Women's Lectionary, Preaching the Women of the Bible Throughout the Year, a Handbook for Feminist Preachers. She also founded Preaching with Confidence, an online preaching class and preaching coaching organization. Ashley travels around the country to speak and preach. She has been teaching and leading workshops on women and spirituality for more than a decade. You can connect with her at ashleymwilcox.com. We are thrilled to have her with us today. Ashley Wilcox, welcome to First Reading. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, we typically start with about the same question every time. How did you get into the field of ministry and, and writing books on the Bible and preaching? So
3: I became a Quaker while I was in law school. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Which was not what I expected, (laughs) but (laughs) I was really unhappy when I was in law school and I was looking for a church community and I found Quakers. And so, really, in my first few years of working as a lawyer, I experienced this call to ministry that was uh, profound and scary. And I was really drawn to preaching. Like, I had this. Mm sense of myself as a preacher, even though at that point I was in a tradition that didn't have very much preaching, at least the part I was in. And so I wanted to go to seminary to learn about that and to find some skills to have sustainable ministry. And then for the past five years, I've been working with Ted Smith as part of the teaching team for the intro preaching class.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about this this project on the women's lectionary Tell us how you you know came up with the idea, how you worked on it, you know, and how you focused on these particular characters. Yeah. At the
3: time, I was pastoring a church that I co-founded called Church of Mary Magdalene, and this was my first time as a weekly preacher. I'd done a lot of preaching before that, but it was always a one-off or an occasional once a month, maybe. Um, And it's so different. (laughs) Like you really have to think about continuity when you're in the same community preaching each week. And so like many preachers, I fell back on the revised common lectionary to find my texts because I really liked the community. I liked that it took me in different places. Um, And all of the resources for the RCL. Mm. But um, I also really wanted to preach on women. And a lot of weeks there aren't passages on Mm. women in the RCL. And so I was talking about this uh, with my partner one weekend. It was Thanksgiving weekend and we were driving and I was saying how I loved the resources in the community of the RCL, but I really wanted to preach on women. And he was like, well, why don't you just write your own lectionary? Like one does, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. no big deal. (laughs) And you were like, I'll do that. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to also mention that he's in tech, (laughs) like
2: he is not
3: in this field. (laughs) But I thought it was a really cool idea. And so I spent the rest of that holiday weekend just putting together a calendar of readings to see if I could um, come up with a full year of two readings per Sunday and holiday on women in the Bible and feminine images of God. Um, You know, it's like a puzzle. So it was great because I was in the church, you know, preaching regularly then. And so I would do the exegesis for the week for my sermon and then turn that into a commentary. Mm.
1: I can't wait. Yeah, I have. I know it's out there and, and it's available, and folks can get it. And I haven't gotten my hands on a copy yet, but I'm super excited to see I it. I can't
2: wait to see it in pulpits. It's going to be great. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. Exactly.
2: <laughs> okay, so that's great. So we've gotten through those questions. and uh, <laughs> <Good> transition. transition. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, we're so happy you could be with us here today. And um, why don't you start us off by reading the assigned text for today?
3: So our text for today is. Ruth 3, 1 through 5 and 4, 13 to 17 and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you Now here is our kinsman Boaz with whose young women you have been working See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor Now wash and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Hmm. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David.
1: The word of the Lord. It's such a good text. And I, I mean, I i feel like this happens almost every time on this podcast where it gets read out loud. And then again, I hear something new that I hadn't paid attention to before. Uh, but before we dive straight into the exegesis, let's kind of do a, a broader scope context of the book. Um so for folks who might not be more familiar with the book of Ruth in the parish, um, some preachers might have to do like a two-minute sketch at the beginning of their sermon. So could you give us just a like a two-minute summary
3: of the book of what happens? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So at the center of the book of Ruth are these two women, Ruth and Naomi. And the book starts with Naomi and her husband leaving Israel This is during the time of the judges and there's a famine. And so they go to Moab and they have two sons. And so their two sons marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then Naomi's husband dies and both of her sons die. She's lost all of the men in her family and she decides to go back to her home. Her two daughters-in-law start going with her and she tells them, go back to your people. I have nothing to give you. And Orpah does, but Ruth says, no, I'm going with you in this beautiful speech mm-hmm. that you so often hear in weddings of, you mm-hmm. know, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. And one of the things I like to say about Ruth is it's uh, one of the books that makes the Bible pass the Bechtel test. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice you actually two women talking to each other yeah um, and not about a man <laughs> and so these two women go back together um, they're committing to each other and they need some form of support and so Naomi has a relative, Boaz. They go back to her hometown and Ruth goes out into the fields, gleaning after the harvest, getting their food that way. And Boaz makes sure that she is with his uh, women and protected from the men that might bother her there. And then when this is getting into where we are today, the harvest is coming. And so this gleaning season is ending And so they need a new form of support. And so Naomi comes up with this plan for uh, Ruth to marry Boaz, and that will be their means of support.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned that it comes in the time of the judges. Um, What might it be important to know about the Book of Judges that it'd be helpful to know for for preaching this text?
3: So the book of Judges is an interesting one for women. There are some yeah. very strong women in there. Um, in particular, you have Deborah and Jael and Delilah. Um, yeah. And um, and as you progress through the book of Judges, things get worse and worse in general, yeah. but especially for women, ending yeah. with some real... Um, gender-based violence, and it's really hard. So you have the story of two women in Ruth who are trying to stay safe and find protection um, in a time when that was not always the case. Women didn't always have safety or protection.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the, that first line that this is in the days when the judges ruled to us is just kind of like, Oh, set in the days of judges, but to ancient audiences, it would be like danger sign, danger sign for women. Like this is, this is not going to end well. I always right. feel like the book of judges is like one of those movies where you get to the end of it. It's like, why did I just watch that? Why did I spend two hours of my life to feel worse? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so you already just started talking about, um, The kind of protection that they might be looking about and thinking about. And so the first thing that kind of comes up in chapter one um, and you read in the NRSV this word security. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what these women are looking for and that that word appears earlier in the text in chapter one verse nine when Naomi tries to let her daughters in law off the hook and just say, yeah. why don't you stick around here and, and make your way and find security somewhere else? Can you say a little yeah. bit more about that word and, and how you see that word functioning in this section?
3: Yeah. I love um, Rachel pointed this out, how the word can mean security or rest.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and like, you can't rest unless you are secure. <laughs> You have to be in a place of safety before you can rest. And so, if she is in her father's house with her people or with a husband, she can be secure and to rest. But outside of that protection, there is no space for her to rest.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, you're painting a real picture of insecurity there, right, for those two women. So in chapter two, we're starting with this barley threshing floor scene. How do you see this functioning in terms of the setting for what's going on and and what's going on in terms of the festival? Because that's going to be part of the background for the next part.
3: Yeah, <laughs> something that I thought was really interesting, and I'm sure we'll get into this more later, is that um, the threshing floor is associated with sex work or prostitution. Um, mm. And you see this in Hosea 9 1. I'll just read it. Um, do not rejoice, O Israel, do not exult as other nations do, for you have played the whore departing from your God. You have loved a prostitute's pay on all the threshing floors. <laughs>
2: I never made that association it paints a pretty um stark picture then for what naomi instructs ruth to do you know what is what is she actually asking ruth to do
3: i think this is a place where you can read it in a lot of different ways and there are so many double meanings and the words in this passage that we would not necessarily recognize um one of the things about the anointing is a woman anointing herself could either come at the end of a grieving period or right before she's going to be married. Mm -hmm. And so in Ruth's Mm -hmm. case, she's doing both. Like she's finishing grieving Mm -hmm. her husband who has died. Mm -hmm. She is going out to find her next husband. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, There might be a temptation to talk about um, Naomi putting Ruth in this dangerous situation, which she is. But it's important to remember, they're already in a very dangerous situation. Um, And, you know, Ruth being a single woman out in the fields, if she didn't have the protection of these other women, like, she would be open to sexual assault, potentially rape, Mm. being bothered by the men. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Naomi is asking Ruth to go out on the threshing floor. She says uh, to Ruth, don't be known to him, you know, known in a biblical sense is one of the double meanings until he is, you know, eaten and drunk and had all his sleeping there, and then uncover his feet,
1: which is another. What does that mean? (laughs)
3: Right, right. This
1: story, the whole book of Ruth, but especially this moment, reminds me so much of the Tamar and Judah episode in Genesis, where there is all of this innuendo and nothing outright stated. So with kind of that that background in mind, yeah, why don't you talk about what it means to uncover one's feet in the
2: Bible?
3: I mean, I'm sure you both know that feet is a euphemism for genitalia. And we find this in the um, laws of not uncovering a close relative, which is not uh, having sex with a close relative. And so to uncover feet is a pretty uh, blatant decision. When
1: Boaz had eaten and drunk and was in a contented mood, the the Hebrew there is fantastic. It's when his when his heart was pleasured, when his heart was happy, when his heart was good. And you know, heart is like this central area in your chest. So it's like when he had a good buzz going. You know, when he was merry, <laughs> he goes and lays down. And then verse eight. He turns over and there lying at his feet was a woman. And my one of my students who was translating this was like, well, did he just like feel a draft? And
3: because his feet were uncovered, it woke him up? <laughs> <laughs> Before we get too far into that, going back to Ruth and Naomi, um, you know, Naomi says all of these things. She has this plan. She tells um, Ruth what to do. And... Ruth says, all that you tell me, I will do. Like, there's some real agency here for both of these women. You know, Mm -hmm. she's not commanding her to do this. Ruth agrees to it. Just by contrast, going back to the Book of Judges, like comparing this with the story of Samson's wife, Samson gets married to this woman and then abandons her and his wife is given to his best man. And then he comes back around a little while later and is like, I want my wife. And her father says, well, she's married to this other man now here's her sister. And so giving away women is (laughs) part of the context of this. And so to have these two women who are talking about what they want, agreeing to it, um, having this agency to put the plan into action is a real contrast. I
1: think it is a contrast and I think there's there's layers of ambiguity even in that in that contrast as well. I mean I could imagine being someone who had been in a, a sort of elder, younger relationship that was not the healthiest, reading this text and being like, Did Ruth have that much agency to say no? You know, I think there's there's so so many layers of, of consent. And I think what, maybe one of our preaching pitfalls for this text would be to lean too far in either direction mm-hmm. on that, to you know, naming this as completely supporting women's agency or completely taking it away i think there's like most areas in life especially when when um it's an issue of survival uh you know this is not just an issue of thriving this is an issue of survival and so those layers get really gray and really ambiguous what do y'all think about that
2: it's really helpful to kind of uh, to think that there might be different sides as well and as you pointed out ashley too it's rare when we see two women negotiating power. Yeah. And so that yeah. was really helpful in what you're saying. But it's worth talking about, you know, how we negotiate uncomfortable conversations. Like yeah. how how are we going to get through this really hard situation together? Yeah. Um, and here's yeah. here's a plan. Okay. I'll, I'll, we'll try it.
3: And I mean these women. At least as far as I read, do have a relationship built on trust, not an abusive kind of mother relationship like we see in some of the other texts. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you, like there is a lot of ambiguity in this and you can read it in a lot of different ways.
2: It's also my culture, right? So I'm also thinking intergenerationally of the kinds of power that elder women in my community and so i'm glad we're having this discussion because uh, depending on who's in your congregation you might have a gamut of experiences between um older women who have been either supportive mentoring offering good advice and then older women that have been less so you know who have you know maybe wanted to overwrite their their daughter's lives or their younger women in their lives because of choices that they've made so i mean the the mix of those experiences it's a temptation, I think, to just say, oh, when we see two women together, it's something to celebrate. Um, but there's, you yeah. know, there's mixed experiences in our, in our pews. So it's it's valuable to kind of acknowledge that not everybody has had positive experiences of yeah. female friendship.
3: Absolutely. And I mean, we can't forget that this is Naomi protecting herself as well. She is yeah. giving Ruth so that she will have security.
2: Yeah. Oh, such a good
1: point. Yeah. And that's actually this whole conversation about the relationship between Ruth and Naomi leads us into an interesting place in chapter four, where there's also an interesting presentation about Ruth and Naomi's relationship. Maybe we'll put a pin in that, though, because there's this really complicated legal scene that happens in between those two. (laughs) Ashley, Rosie, you're both lawyers, uh, trained lawyers like Take it away. Talk about the legal aspects of this of this story. I was oh super gosh. excited
2: that Ashley was like, yeah, I want to talk about the legal stuff. I mean, it's a pretty prominent part of this narrative. The The narrator spends a lot of time talking about the ins and outs of, of Leverite marriage and law. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and help our preachers to think about that background? And if they're interested, to preach a little bit about it.
3: So Leverite marriage is like one of my small obsessions in my book, (laughs) honestly, like I talk about it all the time. Um, And part of it is because it helps to frame what patriarchy is, like what this patriarchal system Uh is, Mm -hmm. and then potentially gets rid of it (laughs) later on in the Bible. And I'm just like, this is kind of a key to my understanding of the Bible and Mm -hmm. patriarchy and women's role in this. The law of leveret marriage comes from Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And so this is the law that if a man dies with no son, um, his brother shall marry his widow and their firstborn will carry on the name of the man who died. There are at least two purposes of this, of leveret marriage. One is to continue the man's name, which is basically, you know, their version of the afterlife of carrying on the family name. Um, and to protect the widow, to make sure that this woman who is part of the family but doesn't have a man to protect her has this protection from the brother. And so um, I started seeing this throughout the Bible. Mm -hmm. Rachel, you mentioned earlier the leveret marriage in Tamar, the story of Tamar, and this is in Genesis 38. And so to boil down a very long, complicated story after Tamar's Father-in-law Judah, brother of Joseph, um, refused to give her in marriage to his third son um, after the first two sons die. Tamar tricks him into having sex with her um, and impregnating her. Um, because he won't follow the law. And mm-hmm. when he finds out what she's done, he says she's more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son. Right. Well, and that word is actually
1: righteousness. It's actually Tzedakah, she is more righteous than I, like it's a big ticket moment.
3: Yeah, she's mm-hmm. righteous. And yeah. so um, when we read these stories, they may seem like ethically odd <laughs> um, or, you know have some kind of sexual deviance to them, but really Tamar and then Ruth are following this law and trying to perpetuate the family line in the way that they know about. Going on to Ruth, one of the commentaries I read said that she had to nudge Boaz into following this law. You know, he wasn't quite doing the right thing, which I actually disagree with. Um, Hmm. And my background in law is in appellate law. So it's applying law to fact patterns, which is exactly what this is. And so the kind of complicated legal issue in the middle that we skip over is that there is a kinsman, a kinsman redeemer who is closer than Boaz. And so really this other man should be um, taking the field, you know, redeeming the field and then marrying Ruth, but he hasn't. And so once Ruth essentially proposes to Boaz, he's like, okay, but there's someone else who is first in line before me. And so he goes to the other man and first he's like, do you want this field? The man's like, Sure. And then he's like, and there's the wife that comes along with it. <laughs> right. Says, no, I don't want that. <laughs> and so they clear out the person who is first in line and then Boaz is free to marry Ruth.
2: It, it's so cool because that in that scene, too, I noticed that the, the man that's closer, the kinsperson is like, I'd rather not have the wife because it'll mess with my property Uh, you know, transmission. So it's it's a very strategic way that Boaz sets up the conversation because he could have started off with the wife, but he starts out with the property, draws him in and then says, uh, oh, also there's this woman.
3: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And part of that is that the property will go to the son and be part of the inheritance of this previous husband, because that's how lover marriage works. Right well, and it's a fascinating i mean it's a fascinating discussion
1: too, both in Tamar's story and here of of these women who are forced to act to force the men to act in a righteous way and are both foreign mm-hmm. um so you know I mean, I think that almost brings us nicely to the end of the story too, because as a foreigner um it's almost like ruth can't be given too much credit because she just sort of fades away at the end of the story. You know, Naomi is uh, takes on her son Obed as as kind of a nursemaid, which is beautiful, but even like the the neighbor women are the ones who name him and Ruth just sort of fades. So what do you make of that, Ashley?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense in the context of the book as a whole because it starts with Naomi um, you know, Naomi and her husband, and then Naomi's loss. And really, in the first chapter, Naomi is like a Job figure. She has yeah. lost everything and she is bitter. She is, you know, saying that God has forsaken her. Like it is a really intense passage. And so then you have this restoration at the end, also similar to the book of Job, I think, um, mm-hmm. where you don't yeah. actually get back what you lost, but something else restores that. Um, and I think it, this makes sense in the context of Levirate marriage as well, because um, the son that is born to Ruth is uh, Naomi's grandson because he is the son of her husband who died. Um, and so a son has been born to her after she lost her sons and potential mm-hmm. grandchildren. I also think this question about the women naming the child, I don't know why um, they do that. It seems kind of strange, but it does seem like they are bringing um, Naomi and Ruth fully into the community, that this community of women is um, accepting them and naming the child and celebrating with them.
2: Hmm. I'm glad you brought out the the image of all the women together. It actually, oddly, just immediately the image of the song of the sea with all the women dancing at yeah. the end with Miriam. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I just I kind of saw like a, a group of of women, uh, you know, kind of coming together and saying, "Here is this miracle." Um, mm-hmm. And I think of all the barren women in our texts and in the Old Testament, yeah. where there's this moment of resurrection you know something something has been redeemed in their lives Mm -hmm. by having this child but it is so hard to watch a foreign woman getting erased at the end after seeing ruth be so instrumental in the -hmm. salvation of this small family
0: so Mm -hmm. and it's also
2: hard to then see that the last word is these women are important because they're David's ancestors and so their stories don't stand alone it's that they they have been instrumental in in birthing this very important figure that then you know then you sort of see oh that's why you know, that's why these women are here. Um, So in that way, it's like a, it's like a mixed feeling where I'm like, yeah, yay. And also, ooh. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I, and again, I feel like that's one of the big strengths of the book of Ruth is that it resists being a Disney movie Mm. and it resists hopelessness. It kind of resists both of those poles at the same time. And it exists in this area where there's just you cannot you cannot solve it, or maybe you you hear the book differently depending on your life situation.
3: Yeah, it, it's complex. And yeah. going to the family line part, um, they explicitly name Tamar in this passage, which I find really yeah, fascinating. Wow, right. Great point. Um, Great point. You know, and hope that Ruth's family and Naomi's family will be like the house of Tamar. And yeah. I think in both the case of Tamar and Ruth like if the women didn't do the particular thing they do the line would not have continued like they are the ones yeah. who are responsible for continuing this family line <laughs> yeah right yeah no, they exactly. earned their
2: place in the canon yeah I mean that's yeah. exactly what you're saying is you know it's actually a way of highlighting their contribution like had it not been for their yeah. age.
1: Yeah. Well, and perhaps, so I'm I'm leery of the fact that as a white woman, like, I want this to be happy ending, right? So I just want to name that fact that I, I think I'm leaning in that direction.
2: Yeah, it's not just white, it's American, as I think one of the things yeah. Americans lean into this happy ending. Whereas I think myself being Indian American, I have this side where I, you know, I feel like yeah. the, like, like you said, Rachel, you're looking for also the sorrow, the the yes. line of darkness in this tale <laughs> yeah. and, you know, acknowledging that our congregations are mixed or hopefully are, you know, have mixed yeah. experiences of these or, you know, have had experiences in other countries and can kind of see that the American tradition is kind of to lean into the happy ending. Um, but yeah. to acknowledge that there's a lot of sadness in this book, a, a lot yeah. of hard stuff.
1: Well, let's, I mean, I think we've, we've hit a bunch of the preaching pitfalls. Should we transition to the the preaching angles? uh, Ashley, do you have any ideas to throw out there about how you might preach this text?
3: Sure, I mean, one of my primary things is always to tell the story. Um, So often in our congregations, people aren't familiar with these stories or they've heard a very sanitized version of them. You know, Ruth is one of those places where you get children's stories about it and (laughs) like actually drawing out this language in the text um, is important. And I think breathes new life into a story that may seem very familiar. Mm. Um, But the other place that I just feel drawn to in this is how the people are turning toward each other and connecting with each other and um, making safe spaces for each other of Ruth and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and then bringing Naomi and Ruth into this community of women. Um, There's a lot of people creating a place of security, like we started with, um, where there wouldn't necessarily be one. Rosie, how about you? What do you see as preaching angles here?
2: I think based on our conversation, I'm really drawn to this idea of a community of people, um, both in terms of uh, acknowledging the grief and the the kinds of different ways that we cooperate to help each other survive, and then also the ways that we celebrate, um, because even in that last image of the women, there's a recognition of what Naomi and Ruth have survived.
0: Um, And that they've
2: barely survived, right? And they're not completely out of the woods either. There's just sort of a a little bit of light here at the end. And so for me, just being able to say, you know, all of us have lived through something really difficult in this pandemic. um, Yeah. (laughs) And that there are things to celebrate and things to really mourn in this moment, Um, but to not lose sight of either of those. Like Rachel was saying, this is a story of both hope and despair. And, you know, that they're both. In here, this tension is so, this is what makes this text so rich, the Bible in general, so rich. And these stories about women in particular, because they're often about surviving. And we've gone through a, a national international moment of survival. Yeah.
1: yeah. It makes me think especially too of the data about the number of women who
2: have either given up work or
1: have lost their jobs and um it's a,
2: it's a moment of adult faith formation, like in so many ways. Yeah. All the angles that we're talking about is, you know, it's it's adult. It's not
0: um yeah. the cleaned
2: up children's literature version of Ruth, but we're really inviting folks yeah. into the rated R version, you know, uh, NC-17, you know, like there's, this is, this is what real life looks like. It's messy. It's icky. It's fuzzy.
1: Yeah. Messy, icky, fuzzy. Yeah. (laughs) It's a great article. Rhiannon Graybills does a fantastic job. So the two, the two preaching angles that I came up with, um, the first one is I would just love to hear preachers, even especially male preachers, spend a significant time in their sermon talking about women's relationships and talking about women's friendships. And, and preacher friends out there, if if you're a guy and you don't feel like you, or you identify as a guy, you don't feel like you really understand that, talk to the women in your life. Talk to the women and, and see what sort of sermon illustrations come up from asking them, what are your friendships with other women like? And how do you experience friendships between women being portrayed in the media, and then use that as an in to this conversation, um, to this book. So I think that's the one like beginning, maybe sermon illustration that I threw out there. The other thing that kept floating through my mind as we were talking is who is capable of of acting on behalf of God's justice? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we talked about Tamar, and we talked about Ruth, and they're both women. They're both widows, and they're both foreigners. They are as far to the margin, just about as you can get in a society. And I know a, a fair number of churches in my tradition, in the Lutheran tradition, who really like to preach on justice. And sometimes I wonder, how able are we to actually see justice if we are the people of power in our community? And and I wonder what a sermon would look like, which asks folks who care deeply about God's justice, which asks them to reflect on who is teaching them about God's justice. Because I feel like the slippery place we fall into is when we think we know what God's justice is. As soon as we feel like we're on certain ground, we, we start to slip a little bit if we're the people in power. Who are you listening to who is actually teaching you about God's justice? Who's someone on the margin rather than those folks who are just in the center? So I don't know if you could do much with that, but that's what kept
3: coming to me as I was thinking about these women and, and the testimony that they have. Another thing that I think about a lot in this text is the earlier group of women, the women who are in the fields with Ruth that she is gleaning with. Um, And part of that is I just see such a connection um, between that and the Me Too movement um, Mm. because women talk to each other, especially when there aren't uh, structures that are protecting them from men who could um, hurt them. They talk to each other about who's a good man, how to stay safe, all of that stuff. And so I see, Ruth getting protection there but also like those women would have talked about Boaz because they worked with them (laughs) right so you know right we don't we don't have that in the text but I think um, I can read it in pretty easily Mm.
2: I love that yeah Yeah, and I just I love the idea too that there are these unseen portions of the Bible I mean they're there but they're veiled you have to kind of look to see but you can see now these women bent together working side by side um, and sharing survival information, stuff that, you know, would, yeah. would be yeah, invaluable. It's, it's sharing life together. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. We're at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. We could keep talking all day, I think. But Ashley yeah. Wilcox, thank you so much for being our guest today and helping illuminate this beautiful passage and give mm-hmm. preachers what they need uh, for the next few weeks to just be thinking about Thank you so much for having me. This was
1: great. Well, folks, if you liked what you heard this week, there's plenty more over at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or wherever you listen. We post each episode on Facebook every week, so you can listen and share there as well. If you have found First Reading helpful, please do take a minute to spread the word. Many thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that helps us sustain the podcast. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for the music behind the reading and to Tim McNinch for producing First Reading. Thanks to you also for listening. Until
2: next time, I'm Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Rosie Candethal. Thanks for listening.